This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Turn over to Romans chapter 2. You know we're in this new series in the book of Romans, and this morning as you turn there to Romans chapter 2, I think it would be good to just start by asking the question, where are we? That's a good question, and you've probably looked on your outlines and say, well, I hope we're in Romans 2, 17 through 19, or else you're in big trouble today. And uh, I want you to know, I know we're there, but I'm not really asking about where are we in terms of location, but I'm asking where are we today because we want to study this book. I've told you it's one of the supreme epistles in all the New Testament, if not the crown of all epistles in the New Testament. I think it's important that as we study it, we go over it and over it again and understand really the flow of the argument. So where are we, not in terms of location, but where are we in terms of the flow of Paul's argument in this letter? Where are we in terms of Paul's thoughts? You know, if you remember the opening message of this series, we introduced the whole letter to you. Bill Parkinson did with a very simple but helpful outline. And I just want to go through it again with you so you get a sense of the movement, because it's so important to watch the movement of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 3. Okay, everybody can memorize this. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks about the problems of man. When we get to chapter 4, from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 8, what Paul offers, and it is glorious, is God's solution to man's problems. When you turn to chapter 9 through chapter 11, you are suddenly in kind of a parenthesis in the letter because the question is really asked and answered there, well, what about Israel? So in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul answers the question, what has happened to Israel? And he tells us there that God has not forgotten that chosen people. In fact, God will one day finish what He started, but they are in a time of parenthesis. And then when you get to chapter 12 through chapter 16, you enter a time where Paul rejoins his thoughts that he just finished at the end of chapter 8. And you get these specific applications of effective Christian living. So, 1 through 3, man's problem. 4 through 8, God's powerful solution. 9 through 11, what happened to Israel. 12 through 16, how to live out this Christian life that God has so amply provided for in chapters 4 through 8. Everybody see where we are? That gives us a sense of the flow of this letter. But now I want you to know that we can even get a better understanding of where we are because we're in chapter 2. So that says that we're in the section on the problems of man. So where are we in that first section? Well, I think it would be helpful if we recognize the fact that what we're in is the last of three very sweeping movements that go through those first three chapters. We learned, first of all, that there is in chapters eight, one, I mean chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, this kind of first sweeping statement. It's this. By trusting in wisdom, that is our own wisdom, we found that man becomes a fool in his own social depravity. That's the first movement 
within this section called the problems of man. When man trusts, when we trust in our own wisdom, what happens is, is that we become fools in our own social depravity. I want you to look at chapter 1 just for a moment. Look at verse 22. It says there, professing to be wise, they, that is mankind, became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for whom He should be worshiping for the image of Himself. And then what happens as He worships Himself? Look at verse 24. It says, then God gave man over to the lust of his heart. Look at verse 26. It says, God gave man over to degrading passions. Look at verse 28. It says, then God gave man over to his own depraved mind. He said, okay, you can do it better than me, so do it. And what does man do? Left alone, without God being foolish in his own wisdom, it says that he does the things in verse 28 that are not proper. He's filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. We become gossips and slanders. We hate God. We become arrogant and boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. We don't have any understanding. We've lost our compass. We become untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. This is always, always, the, how the world descends in its own wisdom. It's happened in every culture. It's happened in every empire. When we believe we know better than God, we become fools. And the mirror that reflects back to us our foolishness is the social depravity we bring on ourselves. In fact, you can trace any culture and especially our culture, and as we watch the growing social and moral meltdown of our own culture, it runs along the parallel track of our growing disbelief in the God of the Bible. Those two run parallel, and the more we grow in belief of ourselves, and the more we grow away from belief in the God of the Bible, the more we grow into this social and moral meltdown. One next to the other. Now at the start of chapter 2, as Dan Gerald pointed out last week, the movement of Paul's letter dramatically turns. You know, it's been talking they, 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 and I think Dan pointed that out. When you get to verse 32 of chapter 1, it says, even though they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Because there's a good part of humanity, American humanity, that stands apart and reads the newspaper every morning and is aghast. Look at us. Look what's happening to us. And so we go in this dramatic fashion from chapter 1 to chapter 2 with a change of pronouns from they to you. Therefore, you are without excuse. Suddenly the spotlight's turned on us, the good person. person who thinks he's above all that. And here Paul is addressing the self-righteous person who would look at a socially corrupt culture that's growing more desperate by the hour and say, I'm better than that. Have you thought that? You look at the world and you look at the newspaper, you look at the headlines on TV, I'm better than that. Look what's happening to us. Why didn't somebody do something? But in the first 16 verses, as we found out last week of chapter 2, Paul dismantles the you. He tears it down. He tells us that our so-called goodness 
the fact that we would smugly think of ourselves as the good person, we may be better than those people in chapter 1 in degree, but He presses hard, not in kind. We're just like them. You may not actually commit adultery here today, but you know you've committed in your heart, haven't you? You know you've thought about it. You know you wish you could have. Not a person here that can escape that kind of scrutiny. For some of you, you've gone even further. You've remained your, you've kept your public image, but you've gloried in that adultery in your pornography, your secret movies and magazines. You know you've been there. You may not actually have killed someone, but you've murdered them with slander and gossip, hadn't you? That's us. You may not have robbed a 7-Eleven recently, but you know, there are many of us who've cheated our customers. We've given them less than what we said and kept the rest. We've defrauded our associates. We've cheated on our taxes. We've robbed again and again. You may not appear outwardly racist, but you know there are many of us who secretly in our hearts despise people of other color. And we just wish that they would go away and let us have our world of sameness. That's what Paul's talking about. It's what I call good guy's disease, which assumes that you're not one of them, which assumes that you're okay, but here's what chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 tells us. It says, by trusting in our morality, we become fools. And you know when? We become fools at God's judgment. Would you look at Romans 2, verse 3? It says, and do you suppose this old man, <laughs> I almost want to stop on old man and say, oh good man, with a good job, with a respectable look, with a proper exterior, but who's cloaked with impurities and immoralities and injustices? Do you suppose, O oh good man, that when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and then do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Look at verse 16. Who on that day when according to my Gospel, God will not just judge the exterior, he will not just look at what was known, but God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In other words, before the awful, listen, awful, penetrating exposure of an utterly holy and righteous God, you know what will happen to the moral man? <laughs> he will melt down before that gaze the same way that the wicked witch of the East and the Wizard of Oz melt down before Dorothy, going, I'm not worthy! I'm not worthy! That's what will happen to the moral man who thought he had it right. But before an all-knowing, all-seeing, righteous God that looks at your heart daily, you will find yourself condemned. And that's Romans chapter 2, verses 1-16. through that's the second sweeping movement of the problem of man. Yes, we fall apart in our social depravity when we think our wisdom's better than God, but yes, we fall apart when we think we can live in a way that God will accept us, but He won't. And that brings us 
to the third movement, which is our passage today, the section on man's problems. But now we're introduced to another problem. Starting in verse 17, Paul turns his aim on the final aspect of man's problem, and the answer is religion. It's the problem of religion. And for churchgoers, <laughs> like you and me who sit here today, it gets kind of personal at this point. It makes us feel uncomfortable and queasy. Because listen, here's Paul's point. I'm going to give it to you before we go over it. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, here's what he's going to tell us. That when you trust in religion, by trusting in religion, we become fools in our spiritual arrogance. Now why is that? Because religion has a way of pacifying people. Religion has a way, once you're in, of making you think you've arrived. Religion has a way of smoothing things over, of saying everything's going to be okay, of causing a person to kind of coast through life because they wear a label and they think that's enough. But by trusting in religion, what happens is we become fools in our spiritual arrogance. Now I hope just in saying that you begin to feel a little bit of Paul's flow because he's going to finish up after this and summarize it in chapter 3. But here's what it goes. It goes from them to you and now an uncomfortable woe, maybe me. It goes from the socially depraved lower class, that's chapter 1, to the morally misguided middle class, that's the first half of chapter 2, to now, to the overly confident religious upper class that's here. That's the argument. And he wants to put us through a grid and help us think about our life. And he wants us to understand in this chapter, and I want you to listen to this very carefully, that as good as religion appears to be, it has condemned more people to the eternal abyss of hell than the other two issues combined. The issue of religion is a very important subject. Because religion as religion, as an organization, as a way of organizing God and, and participating and feeling okay, religion can easily become a virtual spirituality. It can become a conjured up, doctored up, hyped up, souped up, pseudo-connection with God that inoculates its followers from the radical spiritual rebirth that Jesus Christ said was mandatory for every person who would ever find an authentic connection with God. Doesn't matter how much religion you've practiced. Religion may be an attempt to organize God. It may be an attempt to say this is where God is, but Jesus Christ told the most religious leader of Israel this, the Spirit of God is like the wind. You hear the sound of it, and it goes where it wants to, but you can't control it, Nicodemus. You can't organize it into a ritual that makes it yours to possess. It can't become a religion because it's more than a religion. And that's why I think 
that it would be fair to say if you took the life of Jesus Christ and you turned Him and His response to religion, it would be fair to say that He hated it. Jesus Christ hated religion. He attacked it more than any other issue. He cursed it. And He even physically attacked it. You know, the only violent outbreak in the whole of Jesus' life, the only place that you see Jesus in a sense kind of get out of control is when He charged into the temple and started kicking over the money tables and cursing the whole system. He attacked it physically. He compared it to tares among wheat. Two plants that maybe you don't know, but tares and wheat in the beginning look exactly the same. It's only when they become mature that one recognizes that this tear is nothing more than an ugly, worthless, unproductive weed. He says that's religion. He condemned it as evil. In fact, in John 8, when he talked to the Pharisees, these great religious teachers of Israel who were very high-caste religious organizers, when he began to prod them and coax them about a real relationship with God, they suddenly turned back to their religion and said, hey, we're... We're, we're the people of Israel. Abraham is our father. And right there in this very poignant moment, you know what Jesus Christ said? Your father is the devil. Now we're talking about good people. But we're talking more about than just good people. We're talking people that went to the synagogue every Saturday. We're talking about good people who look good, who worship God, who prayed, who did all that stuff, who went through all the motions of religion. And their father was the devil. You know, this last week I was visiting with an old friend, David English, who some of you know, parents and students, is now the campus director for Crusade at the University of Arkansas. And we were just visiting, having fun together, and David reminded me that he was from Guthrie, Oklahoma. And somehow we got on the subject of that little town that used to be actually the capital of Oklahoma until it was moved. But Guthrie is kind of a favorite spot of Hollywood. Hollywood comes there and films a lot of the movies in Guthrie. Some of you remember the movie Rain Man with uh, Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. That was filmed in Guthrie, Oklahoma. More recently, the movie Twister was filmed in Guthrie. In fact, if you remember that, for those of you who saw the movie, when that huge tornado ripped through the little town with the drive-in theater, remember that? That was filmed right there in Guthrie. And David was there when they were filming. He went down to the set that they had built right next to the little town of Guthrie. And he told me, he said, you know, he was really amazed at the tricks that filmmakers play. Because he went to the set that you looked at and thought looked so real. But the reality was is those buildings you thought were real were just storefronts with nothing behind them. You know, in the little malt shop, all those things behind you that you thought were real artifacts of, you know, cooking hamburgers and making malts, that was just a painting. But it looked real. And you know that big drive-in theater that the Twister tore through? Well, if you actually saw it, it was just a little miniature theater. But using a camera angle, it was made to look like it was the real thing. And then David said this to me. He said, because of what I saw, it ruined the movie for me. He said, because when I went to see it, I found myself, now listen to this, I found myself looking through the movie, not at it. Now here's the point. When God looks at a life, 
sees all that religious activity, He looks through you, not at what you do. And you may convince yourself because you have a church membership, because you kind of had an emotional experience at a camp, because you go to church on a regular basis, because you kind of carry out your religious duties dutifully, because you participated in some religious requirements, you may convince yourself as, as having the real thing. But a God who looks at life by looking through it, not just at it, may not be convinced at all. Because what you thought was so real, God may look into your life and all He may see are storefronts and painted backdrops and miniature models of the real thing that you used angles to convince others that it was real. <laughs> but it wasn't real at all. It was a fake. It's so easy to let religion become a replacement for real spiritual life. It's both a subtle shift and a tragic one. For by it you substitute a humble pursuit of a real God for lifeless religious activities and passive beliefs that do little but give yourself a false sense of security. You know, at this moment in history, Paul knew his fellow Jews represented the pitfalls of religion about as well as anyone. They were the most religious people on the earth at this point in time. And so they make a wonderful case study of how you can have religion and miss God. That's what verses 17 through 29 tell us. Now I want you to fill out your outline so you won't have to fill anything else in and we'll walk through it because here are the four sections that are in this section of Scripture. First of all, there's religion and lifestyles. That's verses 17 through 23. He's going to talk about the difference between religion and lifestyles. Then he turns to religion and public impact in verse 24. Then he moves to religion and rituals in verses 25 through 27. And then he brings us up close and personal with ourselves when he talks about in verses 28 and 29, religion and reality. And listen, they're not necessarily one and the same. Religion and reality. Look at verse 17. He starts this way with a label. But if you bear the name Jew... You can put all kinds of other names in there, can't you? You bear the name Catholic. If you bear the name Bible Church. If you bear the name Presbyterian. You can put it all in there, but he's going to focus now on a, a specific religion, Jew. And the name Jew literally means in Hebrew, praised with an E-D. Praised. As in praised by God. That's what it meant literally to say I'm a Jew. It's a calling for me to be praised by God. But at this time in history, it was more a label of smug pride than godly praise. I want you to listen. For the Jew assumed he had an automatic spiritual connection with God just by being Jew Jewish. His father was Abraham. Oh, I went through a catechism when I was 12. I was baptized as an infant. My mom and dad... Good Christians. He assumed he had an automatic spiritual connection with God just by being Jew Jewish. He also assumed 
by the spiritual assets that he possessed. He possessed a lot of them, but the most important one was he had the Old Testament. That he was spiritually superior to those unenlightened, ignorant pagans that were all around him. In fact, you'll feel a little of the arrogance when I read through these first verses. Look at verse 17 again. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, you being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. And we stop right there for just a moment. Do you feel the superiority kind of being drenched from those adjectives and verbs? There's a haughtiness there. There's just one problem here. And that's what I call religion and lifestyles. There's a huge problem here. And it's this. In religion... And I don't say this just, just to point the finger at anybody. I'm pointing it at me. In religion, there is always this awful disconnect between what you know and how you actually live. Now, the authentic spiritual life, it agonizes over all the time over bringing those two things together. It feels bad. It lives in a holy tension every day. Authentic spiritual life feels that and keeps trying to press them together. Not religion. Religion has a way of keeping that disconnect, actually almost feeling good under the banner of the love of God. We're just human. And over time, it allows for this awful disconnect between what you know and how you live. But now Paul presses the point because he wants him to say, that's not good enough. And that's what he brings us up to starting in verse 21. He says, you therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? I mean, listen, it is so ironic here between these two senses of arrogance and now hypocrisy. Because here's a people who would confidently strut about talking about how they were special with God, how they had the Bible, they knew the truth. You don't know it, but you need to know it. Look at the mistakes you're making. And they do that. And at the same time, people watch their lives up close and they see the little chips of compromise fall to the ground and the look that that brings, and the world puts arrogance and hypocrisy together, and you know what you get? Verse 24. That's what you get. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You don't get a people who feel drawn to consider God. You get a people who step back and despise you and laugh at you, and if they get a chance, they're going to quarter you off in society and ultimately kill you. Because they hate that kind of religion. They despise it. Now, if I could step aside just for a moment from the text, I just want to give you a personal thought. I worry about us. 
in this regard. And when I say us, I'm not just talking about this church. I worry about evangelicalism, fundamentalism, charismatic movement, the Protestant, conservative, Bible-believing, denominational structure. I worry about that whole realm of people like us who feel that they have really been called into a right relationship with God and who pride themselves like I do that we do have a word from God. But I worry that if we don't keep our guard up, we slowly, silently, subtly slip into religion. And we don't even know it. But when the world feels our presence, they feel us talking down to them. And we don't communicate humility as sinners. We communicate pride. And when we fail morally, we're quick and easy to take our leaders and our people and forgive them and sweep it under the cover along the very things that we've been so quick and pompously to condemn when the world practices the very same things. And the world sees that and the world feels that. And you know what they end up calling us? Religious extremists. They don't feel moved to consider God because of our humble lifestyles. They feel repelled by us. And we don't understand that we're communicating that to them. So you can go back and you can say, but if you bear the name Christian and rely upon the Bible and boast in God, and so on and so forth. But does the impact that people feel drawn by the Christian community I fear that maybe we need to rethink ourselves. You know, I learned this hard lesson years ago. I mean, I really did, and it, and I, and it still bears a mark, although I'm glad he turned out right. But my roommate, my first year in college, my roommate was a guy named Terry Turner. Great guy, played offensive tackle, real big guy. I became a Christian in the spring of 1967, and I started witnessing my faith to him. And he really wanted nothing to do with it. I was a brand new Christian, really didn't know anything, but just kept pressing it. And one night during finals, he and I stayed up all night because he was in a weak moment. And I sensed that, and I began to talk to him about the Bible and things I'd learned. I hardly knew the Bible, but what I learned, I kept pressing him with. And, and by dawn, Terry was right there. He was this close to receiving Christ. And man, he thanked me, and he hugged me, and he said he was going to give it more consideration. And I went away feeling real good about myself. Of course, I still had finals, and I was under a lot of stress. And about 10 o'clock that next night, some guys invited me out. We ended up in a bar. We ended up drinking. I ended up drunk. And I came staggering into the dorm, and I remember standing over the water cooler drinking, kind of like this, and Terry walked out, my roommate. I'll never forget what he did. You could just feel the disappointment on his face. And he said, Christian, right. And walked away. We do not understand how sacred our lifestyles are. And how much, if we want to put anything before the world, we need to be putting before the world that we're sinners. Hoping to grab another piece of, of the power of Jesus Christ to help us live better, 
but not pompously strutting around, condemning the world from a lofty tower with a lifestyle that's really hypocritical to begin with. That's the hard chastisement of this passage. But let me say, real faith is always pressing these two worlds together. It keeps what we believe and how we live very close. But in religion, you know what religion does? Now I'm going to speak generally again for religion, not just us. That disconnect becomes a way of life. We separate what we believe from how we live in a continuous way. In fact, we begin to excuse in our very midst behavior that should be condemned or confronted. And after a period of time, if we do it long enough, if religion does it long enough, it begins to actually invite sinful behavior into its midst and license it as excusable under the love of God. And we have watched major denominations nations and churches begin to invite into their midst behaviors and activities that the Bible would condemn, but we've left that. And now we say, it's okay. We need to love everyone because God is love. And what happens is we get religion. And after we get enough of that religion by trusting in that religion, in time we become fools in our own spiritual arrogance. And those very behaviors that then we license as of God turn and kill our society. This is the curse of religion. Now suddenly Paul turns and he speaks to ritual starting in verse 26. Or excuse me, verse 25. Here's what he says. He says, For indeed circumcision is a value. All of a sudden we get circumcision kind of out of the blue. Kind of hit you cold. But Paul's speaking of some things that are very important to the Jew. He says, For indeed circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has actually become uncircumcision. And we've got to stop here for just a moment and talk about a sensitive subject. Circumcision. See, this was a religious ritual that was ordered by God on every Jewish male child to mark him as a child of the covenant. And so, early after birth, on his sexual organ, a cut was made that marked him for a lifetime with a sacred scar that would remind him that he was owned by God. But now listen, because this is kind of the point Paul's trying to get across. He's saying that religion takes rituals like these, and we could list all kinds of others, baptism, Lord's Supper, marriage, things like that. But religion takes rituals like these and it trusts in the ritual completely. It says, that's it. I'm done. I'm in. Now I can go live like I want to live. But authentic spiritual life knows that all rituals whether it be circumcision or baptism or the Lord's Supper or whatever it might be, as worthy as they are, are only really valid when the spiritual life that they represent and remind us of is actually practiced by us. A lot of us have a ring on our finger. That ring tells us that we're married. But if you're actively pursuing another person outside your marriage, this symbol is just an ugly piece of metal. It means nothing. Nothing. You can be up here and have been baptized and proclaimed your faith in Jesus Christ, but if you're out living on the social circuit in the community in dark clubs 
with a different person every night, that baptism became unbaptism. That's Paul's point. In the case of circumcision, it was a symbol of God's ownership. But Deuteronomy 30 and Ezekiel 44 and other passages like that tell us that only when God is allowed to cut away the hardness of something even more intimate, the heart, when He gets there and marks the heart with His ownership and brings that place of intimacy under His ownership, only then does the physical mark of circumcision connect with that powerful reality and makes it valid. The mark alone means nothing. And that's what follows. Notice what takes place here in verses 26 and 27. He says, if therefore the uncircumcised man... Now he's just speaking of a whirling who the Jew would have nothing to do with. If he keeps the requirements of the law, <laughs> will not his uncircumcision be regarded by God as circumcision? Is he not better than you? Is the whirling not better than you? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, judge you though having judge you who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? You know, there are sometimes, as far as application, better pagans than Christians. And God sees that. He takes all of that into account. Because circumcision or any other ritual of religion that somehow wants to make us complacent and feel like it's done, we're finished, we're in, that's totally off base. It's only as good as the spiritual reality of your life. And then that brings us to what I think is kind of this shocking conclusion as far as the Jew or anybody in religion would be concerned because these last two verses of chapter 2 bring religion and reality face to face. And boy, it's an unbelievable statement. Look at verse 28. For he who is not a Jew, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Whoa! Are you telling me that all those people who have grown up in the physical line of Israel, whose father can be traced back to Abraham, who have passed these symbols and elements along through the history and stayed together as a people and come back in the land, are you telling me they're not Jews? Yeah. That's what it's telling us. If it's just outward. Jews by race, maybe. But not Jews in the understanding of the Scriptures. Because he says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. It occurs by the Spirit of God, not by just reading a text. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You see, there are a lot of Jews by race, but in this room... For those who connected with Jesus Christ in a very personal, real way, there are Jews by grace. That's his point. It's either the real thing or it's nothing at all. Now I want to close by giving you four very important applications to this text. Here's the first one. Because now I want to apply this text to where we are today, and it's this. Religion is to spiritual life. Now this is going to sound real strong, but I think this is accurate with the Scripture. Religion is to spiritual life what Satan is to Jesus Christ. It is a compelling, seductive, 
tragic counterfeit that many people will perish in. You know when you're at the doctor's office or if you're a student, you're at the university and you're registering, you fill out your name, address, your dad, your height, your weight, and then there comes this little place where it's got religion. And you put Catholic, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Bible church, independent, whatever. You put that name in, and a lot of people, even as they write it in, it's kind of my label. It's the place I take safety in. If we're in a religious discussion, somebody starts asking me about real things, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm Catholic. I, I, go to, I go to fellowship. See, it's a label we can go hide in. But you can't hide with God. That's the point. In fact, if there were a label when it says religion that I'd probably feel more comfortable with after going through this text and thinking about my life, when it says religion, you know what I like to put in there? Sinner. Just sinner. And then maybe a little notation underneath who every day is just trying to connect a little bit with the life and power of Jesus Christ. That's my religion. Sinner. It is so important to hear these truths. Secondly, religion draws a hostile response from the world and the reason it does is because it deserves it. It's arrogant and it's hypocritical. And we have fallen into that place at times and God help us to repent. But real spiritual life should draw the world to consider God. You know, if you think of leaders, spiritual leaders that represent our community, there are people in that community where when their names are mentioned in the press or in the paper, you feel people considering God like a Billy Graham. But then there are others. When their names are mentioned, you, you draw back. The world draws back. It becomes hostile and angry because it's been talked down to. It's been preached at. It's been condemned. And then when the world reacts and persecutes them, then it kind of feels good about itself because, well, they persecuted Jesus, they'll persecute us. It kind of takes almost a delight in the persecution. But ladies and gentlemen, can I, can I offer this to you? If you read through the Scriptures, the Scripture does talk that there will be times of persecution, but there are more verses that say that the real mark of authentic Christian living is that people would see your light and your life and want to give glory to God. So we need to rethink at times our methods. We need to say, when we're really getting it right the way God wants it to be, our community should be excited about this church. Not, well, stay away from that place. Because of the humble lifestyles that are generating authentic spiritual life, not under the banner of we've made it, but under the banner of sinner. Thirdly, each of us should courageously ask God to circumcise our own hearts. That's a scary prayer. But you know what I think would be a great prayer to leave with today? Cut deep, O oh God. I give you the opportunity to go as deep as you want to go and to cut as much of this defective heart out as is necessary to give me an authentic, real, spiritual life. Not church attendance. Not a community group. Not a did a service project. Those are all good. 
but you did something in me that has connected me with you for which I will be eternally grateful. Cut deep. And then lastly, and now I'm going to speak to the young people here. Teenagers, college students, whoever you might be. You who are from Christian homes, beware. Beware. Because you of all people, you from Christian homes, you with a Christian mom and dad, you from a parent who maybe late in life embraced Christ and you've seen them change, you of all people are the most susceptible candidates for embracing religion rather than a real spiritual life. Because by being around it, you think you know it. You use the language. You can talk the verses. You can do the attendance. You can do all that. And grow up and 20, 30 years from now as a 50-year-old person be sitting in a church going through the religious motions without ever having connected with a brokenness before God that's led to an authentic connection with God. Please beware. There are no, as we've heard before, no second generation Christians. You can't coast on mom and dad or being at a good church. I grew up in this church. That'll never get you there until you make contact with the living God in a way that transforms your heart to be pleasing to Him for a lifetime until you feel that impulse every day within your spirit because God has regenerated your spirit. Until that happens, you got religion, not reality. So what have we learned today? We have learned that man in his wisdom becomes foolish in his social depravity. We have learned that man in his morality, ends up melting down before the judgment seat of God. And we have learned that man in his religion will perish in his spiritual arrogance. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we close the book this morning, we pray that this hard look at ourselves will not go unheeded. Father, I pray for my friends here today that as we feel the pressure of these words, that we will consider them as not just from a man. We will consider them as being from Your Holy Spirit. We will consider them in evaluating where we stand with You. And Father, my prayer for myself, oh God, would You cut deep. And where there is any barnacle or appendage of religion, however bad it might hurt, would You cut into that? Would You keep us a humble people And Lord, would You protect our young people and our new people from falling into an organization and enjoying it, but then missing You. Help us, O oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.